we've all been a part of conversations uh, in our lives where at some point you, you look back after it's done and say, man, I wish that we got that on tape or I wish that um, that other people could have could have heard this or experienced this. And I think podcasting at its best, um, when it's at its best, can be used to share those stories and those and those conversations, capture those those moments in the hopes that uh, you know it, it may be applicable to to someone out there in uh, in internet land. That a conversation or a thought might find the right ears at the right time and uh, might be able to to impact someone's life or their business. And I got to say that this week's conversation, I think, is one of those. I think it's an important conversation. So welcome to Rust Belt Startup. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. And Rust Belt Startup is a podcast that reconstructs Remarkable. It's long-form conversations with entrepreneurs, educators, musicians, artists, and people that are creating interesting lives in interesting locations, unconventional lives in unconventional locations, people that are making their communities better. This week's interview is a conversation with Pastor Mike Ballman, and uh, Mike is the pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in uh, on Oneida Square in Utica, New York, and he's also the founder of the Oneida Square Project, which is a social enterprise um, that creates beautiful mosaic work to beautify cities, amongst many other projects in the area. And so this interview is a little bit different from what we've normally been posting on the podcast. Um, we do talk uh, quite a bit about social enterprise and, and creating opportunities uh, for people that have not had opportunity. But this is really more of a conversation about Mike's story and Mike's journey. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very interesting journey. And that story, you know, I think we really focus more in this interview on how do you how do you discover where your true north is, and and how do you how do you follow that calling wherever it's going to lead you, and and frankly through difficult circumstances. I think Mike's story is really one of uh, inspiration and resilience and tenacity, and um, I think we all can learn a lot about overcoming adversity and trying to challenge the assumptions that many of us hold in our heads. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so while uh, we're not going to go super heavy on, on business this episode, I think that um, this is an important conversation that um, asks a lot of questions uh, of all of us. And it's something that uh, I, I took a lot, a lot from. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Pastor Mike Bowman. Well, let's start at the end and, and we'll go back to, to the beginning okay. is when you, how would you describe Oneida Square to someone? How, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would describe Oneida Square as a, as I think a, a work of art in progress. And it's really began to take shape over the last few years, mm -hmm. um, especially with the roundabout. I know a lot of people hated the roundabout and people lost their minds over the roundabout, but I think the roundabout was a great catalyst for kind of a, um, a revitalization of the area. People, I think, starting to think that, oh, wow, there, it, it actually looks aesthetically pleasing now, <laughs> you know, there, and, uh, cause there was landscaping and, and, uh, uh, you know, light posts. And, and then, um, when we started doing, um, with the one world flower fest, doing the flowers and some, and then actually our mosaic sculptures and trash cans and things, uh, people started to, I think, really see that, Hey, th this is something that we can take pride in. And so I think that, um, as, um, uh, people start to see that it can again be something beautiful um it has become kind of a convergence of of what i think makes utica great which is different cultures different people um because oneida square has so many interesting things going on um we have uh you know the different restaurants um the gym uh body alive our church um and uh 
and it, I think, is the geographical center of Utica. Mm-hmm. I think, is that, am I right about I that? I mean, the, you know, I, I, think, I think when people that live here think yeah. about it, I think that's a midpoint. You yeah. Know? I don't know if it always was, but. Yeah, and um, I think maybe even, like, on the map it is. But, I think but, it is, too. Yeah. yeah. And so I just think it's a perfect, that's a perfect metaphor, if not actu- actuality, of yeah. that it's the center of Utica where, where um, east and west cross yeah. and come together. And um, so... But I think it's also been a neglected part. Yes, of the and city. see, that's why I think the roundabout really helped, because so when we the first the first year that we were doing the the we did the flower fest mm-hmm. and we had all of the nice planters and flowers in there, and one of the things I did was water them, you know, about every other night, and I would do that late at night, um, and without, I think every time. Uh, someone from the neighborhood who people would think, because often one thing that I always hated about Oneida Square was you'd hear this on radio and you'd, you'd just hear it from people. Like they'd always say that like Oneida, Oneida Square has like, um, uh, you know, just people that are, you know, rough or mm-hmm. um, unsavory, or, unsavory. Yeah. Name your adjective, uh, name your adjective, yeah. which I always hated. Yeah. And then um, those same people that people would would uh, would characterize that way would always be like, thank you for making our neighborhood look nice and they took pride in it Mm -hmm. and nobody nobody ever you know there wasn't any vandalism and people took pride in that hey someone put flowers Mm -hmm. and things and someone cares about Mm -hmm. our neighborhood and i think that um so that's a long meandering answer i know but i think oneida square is the convergence of east and west and north and south and it's a place where all the cultures and people come together um and it has, I think, incredible potential. Mm-hmm. How long have you been here in Oneida Square? Um, since 2007. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, and then um, I moved, my wife and my son and I then moved here in 2009. Okay. So the church has been here since 2007. Cornerstone, uh, partnering with Plymouth, who's Plymouth has been here since 1905. Oh, no way. Yeah. And then Cornerstone joined, joined Plymouth in um, 07. When you say partner or join Plymouth, what is, what is, that? is it a denominational Two thing? Two different churches, it? yeah. Okay. That we, um, Plymouth was looking for a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Cornerstone Church decided to come and partner with Plymouth uh, here in the neighborhood. And we came in 07. And then I moved my family here in 09, just around the corner on Henry Street. Awesome. So I guess... Going all memento, let's go yeah. back to, back to the beginning. You're yeah. from Speculator, New York, yes. which is so. Contrast Oneida Square with Speculator, because I've been a Speculator, and yeah. it's a totally different yes. beast, right? Yeah. Well, Speculator, New York, is a beautiful, scenic Adirondack town, but um, as far as people, not a lot of diversity. Yeah. So um, actually, when I we would kind of um, the only um, uh, person of color that lived in our entire county when I grew up in Speculator was the state trooper from county? Indian Lake. A county was our state trooper from Indian Lake. Wow. Yes. So not a lot of diversity. Yeah. So um, that's what I really love. Um, I was also, interesting thing was I was also born in, in small town Iowa. Okay. And so, which is even more distant from Oneida Square. And one of my, my fondest memories of childhood is watching Sesame Street. And the reason that I love Sesame Street was for this small town Iowa kid, there was all this diversity and people living in the city and stoops. I was like, what is a stoop? That is awesome. I want one. I want to sit on it, you know, and um, I want to live in a place where there are people and then they would, they would do things in Spanish. And I was like, wow, that is so awesome. And there were, um, you know, there were black kids and Hispanic kids and, and uh, things that I'd never seen. And so it, I think it really captivated me and, you know, I didn't know it was um, preparing me for, you know, what I would love about Utica in the future was just being a place, being in a place where there's so much diversity and people from all over the world. So for you, even early on, that was something that was interesting, not threatening. Yes. And I think yes. that's, you know, I almost think that that's the default for kids. Yeah. And somewhere along yeah. the way, people... It, it gets tainted. Yeah. 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 And that, obviously, that, that never, really, I don't think that ever happened w- yeah. with you. What do you, how do you think that kind of catalyzed where that, that seed got planted and did you know it was planted so early on? Yeah. You know, I didn't know that it was planted, um, until probably, um, well, in the, later in, later in, um, in high school, I, uh, in speculator, there's a place called camp of the woods and it's, 
it's a it's a Christian conference center, and my parents work there, and um, and I work there, and I really liked it. And one of the things that I liked about Camp of the Woods also was that there were always people there from other countries um, who were visiting, and that always mm-hmm. that kind of instilled in me too. Like um, there was always um, we had a, a sister camp in Hong Kong, and there was always um, people from Hong Kong there, and it was just always so interesting. Wow. And people from South Africa, and just learning about. I remember the the most interesting thing that the people from the South African camp would tell the stories about if there was a black mamba that that was in the camp, everyone had to stop and find it and they had to, they had to catch it and release it somewhere else or, and nothing. And that just, I was like, no way. Nothing else happens. I know. Like, can you imagine that? Like, oh, there's a mamba and now we've got, (laughs) so those things are just so exciting to me, you know, just the, that people live in different worlds and have these different perspectives. Um, so and then, so so you're in speculator, and what was so for folks that don't know what spec yeah. or where or what speculator yeah. is? Could you describe? You said rural and Adiron- I would say rural, rural yeah. Adirondack community, but growing up there, uh, besides not a lot of diversity, what how how did you kind of get to? What was the, that formative period of your life, or did you do a lot of traveling, or how did you? Go from Iowa to Speculator and then Speculator to... Yeah, well, actually, I went from Iowa to Illinois to Tennessee to Speculator growing wow. up. Yeah. So I saw a lot of uh, a lot of different things, which was really, I think, great for me yeah. to see... Um, to see one of the another formative thing was when we um, moved from Iowa to Tennessee. I was in the third grade, and uh, one day my dad and I were going to the post office, and at the corner of the post office, so this is probably like 1978... There was the Ku Klux Klan passing out um, uh, flyers at the post office in full gear, not with not with hoods, but um, with their faces open. And, and and being a kid from the north, you know, the Midwest, and seeing that that actually existed and wasn't a caricature or wasn't still a, a relic of the long yeah. past was shocking. Like this really exists, and so living in the South really helped me understand. Um, the problems of of race um, at a, at an early age as well, and and that these things are not just part of history; they still exist. And and I think you know, living and and really even in the South, there at that time in the seventies, the cities were still divided by the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and you know which side of the tracks you lived on, and just seeing that and experiencing that had a deep impact on me, and seeing that the suffering that people endure still you know like i was like this is america how could how could the ku klux like we're saying that now yeah. like today yeah like how could the clan right? still be active and why do why are the the railroad tracks still the the you know the demarcation point for the city and and just you know the, that reality that it wasn't just something in the heat of the night tv show but right it, it right. still existed right yeah uh and then you, you mentioned that you're your folks uh, worked at this um, this this camp. Mm-hmm. It was a um, was it run by by the church or how? It, yeah, it was. It's more. It's it's kind of a, a Christian like conference center that isn't run by any particular church, but just was a place for for Christians to come and and enjoy a, you know an Adirondack vacation, mm-hmm. and then there'd be um, uh, maybe a, they had chapel every day. There's a speaker, mm-hmm. and then different conferences and you know workshops and things like that before we get into kind of you know, Oneida Square and and and, yeah. and social enterprise which is is I want to spend some time on yeah. how where along the lines did did you realize that um, you wanted to become a pastor or or that that was your calling or the most the most effective way to have an impact um I think down deep, I always kind of knew that, but I didn't really want to do it. Um, and it's it's a complex story, but hey, we've got time. We right? got time. So, okay. So um, my uh, my dad was a, um, a child of kind of a socialite, uh, wealthy family in Chicago, and so um, he uh, uh, went to kind of a prestigious college, kind of like Hamilton in um, Iowa called Grinnell College. And that's where he met my mother and um, in the 50s. And so my dad, um, I think, um, you know, everyone kind of has a birth legacy, like, you know, what's expected of you. And so, you know, in the 50s, I think my dad's parents expected him to follow in the footsteps and 
um, you know, be a big financial, um, you know, kind of successful person in Chicago and kind of follow the family um, business. But um, I think my dad at some point early in his career decided that that wasn't for him. And so he took the family and he moved to small town Iowa um, from Chicago. And, um, and then uh, I think he really liked that small town that small town um, kind of feel and the idea of, and he was a banker Mm -hmm. and working at a bank and actually getting to know people. And like he was for him, you know, the farmers coming for loans and building a relationship with them is something you just couldn't do in, you know, big city Chicago. Right. So I think he really enjoyed that. And I think there's a part of me that's a lot like my dad, which really likes the relationship and the relational part of immersing myself in a different culture. And Mm -hmm. I think for my dad, you know, small town farming, Iowa, was his way of immersing himself in a different culture and being able to really get to know people and make a difference. Um, but things uh, didn't go well there. My dad lost his job. Um, financially, things were didn't were not good for for my family growing up, and so my dad be, kind of became the black sheep of his family um, because he was, you know, he kind of. Um, didn't take the family path and it didn't go well. So they're kind of like, Hey, Mm -hmm. you didn't do what you were supposed to and told you so. Right. So, um, that was very, I was born about, I was born when all that was happening. And, um, so my earliest remembrances were of, uh, seeing my dad really broken, um, financially and also from the family and just feeling the pressure of, you know, just like what, you know, my dad was, almost 40 when he had me. So it was kind of a midlife crisis. And so, um, very early on for me, formatively, um, I wanted to protect my dad. And that's where I think this whole idea of, um, in me, uh, looking out for the underdog and, um, you know, and as a four year old, that's a lot of to weight. That's a lot of emotional yeah. weight to feel like I had to be my dad's, um, uh, keeper keeper. And so, um, and so I learned humor at a really early age, you know? And so I had this real, um, just this deep felt need to be his protector. And, um, uh, and I think my whole family kind of accepted that role that I had and I had older siblings. And so I was kind of the youngest. Um, and then I was always trying to keep everyone happy and entertained and, um, And so I think that, um, and then seeing how my dad was ostracized by, um, his family and, and then just being, you know, being poor growing up and it gave me a perspective about, um, and nothing that I could ever understand about how, um, minorities or marginalized people Mm -hmm. feel from the institutional racism is nothing like that. But I think it gave me just, uh, being from being ostracized from a world that, um, I could belong, but was not allowed to belong, you know, kind of because, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't successful, um, gave me a perspective of being kind of, um, an exile. And so that from an early age, um, and then that was just reinforced all throughout my childhood was seeing that exile. And so long, so that brings me to the point of, um, I wanted to, I was thinking, well, I want to protect and advocate for and be someone who can um, stand up for the underdog, the marginalized, the exile. But I don't like being poor and I want to be rich, so hey, I'll be a lawyer. Um, Sure, sure. That's a logical conclusion. Yeah, exactly. So I'll fight for people's rights, but I won't be poor. Um, Because Mm -hmm. uh, I I had a pretty good idea that if I was a pastor, I wouldn't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, hey, you know, why not? Why not? Why why Mm -hmm. do that? Um, And so, and one of my seminary professors would say, the first semester for first year guys. If you guys are in it for the money, you lack the intellectual ability that it's going to take to, to, uh, be, to be, actually to, be a pastor. Yeah, yeah, because you don't understand. You're not going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, so that was kind of, I think, um, uh, working at. And then um, so I went to college pre-law. Um, I, I got accepted into law school. And then I kind of had this epiphany. Um, one day driving I, between uh, college and law school, I was working at Champs here in Sangertown Mall, mm-hmm. and I was on my drive. I was living in Oneida, and uh, I was on my drive, and 
Where was law school? Uh, law school, I was at Albany, um, where I was going to go. So you were driving from... No, I didn't go to law school oh, yet, okay, 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 but gotcha, I had been accepted. Gotcha. Okay. So, gotcha. But I was working at Champs in the okay. Mall between, um, you know, and then, um, so uh, then um, um, my dad, when I got to, uh, one day I was on my way and I'm like, you know, this is just kind of dumb. Um, I really feel like... Um, you know, maybe I could, I could affect more change being actually in the community, living with people rather than, you know, and so I decided, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, as a pastor, I, 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 I can say I haven't often had that experience where I feel like I clearly heard from God, mm -hmm. but that was probably one of the only times. And I was like, you know what, I, I, I think I'm going to not go to law school and I'm going to go wow. to seminary. And then when I got to work that day, um, like 20 minutes later, there was a call from my dad saying, Hey, we got your, um, we got your acceptance letter to law school. And I was like, uh, but I'm not going to go. <laughs> so funny story. Yeah. 20 minutes ago. Yeah. 20 minutes ago. And then my dad was like, um, well, it's about time, son, that you figured that out. And it was kind of weird because, um, my greatest, my, my huge ambition of being law school was really just to redeem my family's honor. It's like, I'm going to be, not only am I going to advocate for, for marginalized and poor people, but I'm going to be successful and at the same time redeem my dad's honor um, that he has lost from not being successful within his rich family and society in general. And my dad was like, that's not your responsibility. Yeah. You know, even though he didn't say that, but he knew what was going on, you know. And well, so, 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 but it sounds to me like, the the idea of what success is has changed yes so that early idea was well you have to be and you know and unfortunately even in church culture you would think that that um the i think jesus is pretty clear that uh he said i came to free the 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 brokenhearted mm -hmm. the prisoner the exile um the poor mm -hmm. i've came i've come to bring good news but you would think that that's how the church functions, but I had found, at least in my tradition, that it really wasn't like that. That still, even in the church, um, people define success as worldly success, and with some sort of Christian veneer. Did your father as well at that time? Well, he struggled with it. I think he knew that that wasn't the case, but he tortured himself for not being worldly successful, mm -hmm. even though I think his values demonstrated a desire to be more genuine. Um, I think he always struggled with, but you know, my parents, my family, my people that know me seem to not value that. So I think he was tortured, hmm. you know, which then I was tortured. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of, uh, uh, you, I feel like, should I lay down on a couch here? Is that, is that, is that <laughs> you know, no, if you want to go ahead, that, but I, am I, I going to, are you going to charge me for this time? Here? No, yeah. this is no, but, um, so, but that's part yeah. of, that's part of my story. You know, no, that's a deep that's part an important of, part of what that's a deep part got of you from there to what here. got me from there to here. And so then, um, and then, however, though, I went to a seminary that was, um, <laughs> that only reinforced that that narrative that of um, worldly success as well. So, how is that even possible? It you that is a good question, but it is, and so it's a different kind of success. But so I, the reason why I went to the seminary that I went was to, it just a business school? I mean, is that you, well? Here, you here, know what I mean. Here's the thing. So at at the place where I grew up, um, all of the speakers who are famous speakers, that's why they have to be pretty famous so people will pay sure, pay sure. to come listen to them during the week is so it part of well, I was still even though I'd still had said, you know, maybe it would be better to be a pastor and um, you know, really affect people's lives relationally and um, rather than being a lawyer, I still went to the seminary that, that had the most gravitas where my parents grew up so that, well, okay, if I'm not mm. going to be rich and successful, at least I'll go to the this top tier, this top -tier school right. and that will bring some honor to my family. Mm. But, you know, and it did. People are like, oh, Mike's going to Dallas, you know. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, so in some way I was still doing that. And so I ended up going to this place where it wasn't, I'd say that being financially successful was very valued at that seminary, mm -hmm. but also just being, if you were a successful pastor, you had a huge church. Sure. So like the president of our cemetery, a uh, cemetery, that's funny. That's Freudian <laughs> seminary. Um, 
was really, really famous. And he was actually the first pastor ever to get like a book deal from a big, mm -hmm. he got like a multi-million dollar book deal for like a hundred books through a Christian mm -hmm. publisher or whatever. And he was really famous. So well, the implicit and explicit message at my seminary was if you are faithful, if you are good, your, if you preach it, they will come to borrow the, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come from yeah. field of dreams. And so I just, in some ways I just traded the one, the one superficial thing for another, which is okay, but now I still have to be, so that still tortures me today. I'm trying to, cause I'm pastoring a small church here. Yeah. And as we talk about how our church has gone here, I'll tell you how, yeah. um, it's still something that I have to every day say, you know what? It's, that's not success. Um, you know, having, you know, the book deal and the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the nationally syndicated radio show and, um, mm -hmm. you know, the mega church, but it's still in the back of my mind. Like, well, if I were doing it right, that's what, you know, that's what would be what happening. the outcome is. That's what would be the outcome. Yeah. So you, you go through, I'll call it seminary business school or, yeah. or I, I don't mean, I don't mean to treat, yeah. treat it that way, but you know, um, through that process, were you you understood it sounds like you understood kind of implicitly like this is not necessarily aligned with my yeah, value system but well but but you still you stuck it out i stuck it out and here i'll tell you the the transformational point so um it, there was always this cognitive dissonance for me mm -hmm. i always felt like this was wrong but i'm a compliant person and my worldview and the people that i respect seem to affirm that so who am i to mm -hmm. who am i to yeah. but which also something that people who know me well i'm i'm really sarcastic and um passive aggressive mm -hmm. and so i i'm always that guy that like yeah i'm gonna go along but i will mock it all, all the, the way it, all yeah. the way right so so really the transformational point for me in all this was in my last year of seminary, um, my wife and I had our got pregnant, um, and we we're going to have our first child. And uh, my wife had put me through seminary um, as a social worker at Baylor Hospital there in wow. Dallas, and um, she was excited to not work anymore for a while, and mm -hmm. um, you know have our first kid. And she'd been patient, you know, and wanting to have kids, but wanted to get through seminary. And then um, our first son, uh, his name was. Um, Michael, Seth, um, he was stillborn at five months. And so that was, um, you know, just heartbreaking, tragic. Mm -hmm. um, our world's ended. And being at a seminary that supposedly had the world's greatest preachers, um, we've, we really felt like they were totally inadequate at addressing our suffering. And, um, you know, even I had to drop the whole semester uh, just because, and it was at the end of the semester, and my professors really weren't even that um, compassionate or merciful or present during this time. And I just was like, um, F you guys. Yeah. You know, um, F the whole thing. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and. Um, I was like, how is this, you know, touted as the world's greatest, um, you know, place of teaching for, for the Bible and, um, and they can't even help us, you know, someone hurting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that really changed everything for me. And, um, and then a year later, um, a year and a half later, my wife and I had our, our second son, Noah, and then Noah was born with a very rare genetic um, mutation and was immediately upon birth very sick. And, um, and once again, we just felt not only by our, the seminary, but our church denomination just very abandoned. Um, and they were inadequate to, to, to address our suffering. So I'm like, look, let me get this straight. Jesus said, I've come to to heal the brokenhearted, the suffering, those who mourn, and they have nothing to say to mm -hmm. us. Um, so that was a very formative experience for mm -hmm. us, um, and I think that's what really changed everything. So, um, uh, so I say, you know, if 
if we had not gone through that, then maybe, you know, we wouldn't be here where we are mm-hmm. today because it has not only those experiences, but then, you know, 18 years of raising a special needs child um, has just in a small way given us a window of what it means to be exiled, marginalized. And, um, and I think that's what gives us the compassion and the little bit of understanding to be exactly where we are here today. Um, you know, there, I saw, um, a, a tweet the other day, um, I think it was Lin-Manuel Miranda or something. Yeah. And, uh, he said, and I don't know if this is his quote or not, but I, I he said, um, you know, I think he, he said like pain is, is flammable. It's like rocket fuel. You can either let it power the rocket or you can let it blow up the rocket. Yeah. And that really kind of, yeah, stuck with me. I think that's, right. that's true. And I think it it even uh, helped us understand a deeper, I think, spiritual truth, which is the only way to deal with that kind of suffering and grief is to move beyond ourselves mm-hmm. and be with people who are offer, also suffering and feeling that grief. Um, and, you know, I look at it this way, like if I want to feel the comfort of Jesus I need to be where he is. And he says very clearly that I'm with the suffering and the poor and the outcast. And so that's really been yeah. you know, what I've, you know, really. Well, I think, you know, as, as, as completely um, terrifying as the, the, the situation is uh, around the country, you know, one of the things that I, th- I think um, that I've thought a lot about that we've either lost or we've forgotten about or forgotten how to deploy is is empathy i think Mm -hmm. that's like yes whatever facet of of life you want to talk about whether that's um faith or politics or economic Mm -hmm. development or jobs or the lack of deployment of empathy seems to be this missing ingredient right do you have any (laughs) you're you're the pastor here any thoughts on how we get this back that is a great question because to me this is like the silver bullet like yeah. once you can get beyond yourself there's a yeah. there's a thing that happens well i mean um let me put on my my pastor hat but um i mean jesus if we are to follow him that's kind of what we're supposed to do to follow him but somewhere and i think that's the key is following jesus in immersing ourselves in the lives of our neighbors and understanding them. So for me, even though I had this experience with our sons and had this greater empathy, I still was I still was a white kid that had mostly grown up in mostly white areas and I still had a lot of really stunted political and social views. I, I was compassionate, but I still didn't understand. So I would still I still didn't get a lot of things until we moved into the United Square neighborhood. So once we moved into the neighborhood, my next door neighbor was a pot dealer. And growing up in small town Iowa and speculator and only thinking that I understood um, uh, urban culture because I'd seen The Wire. because um, you know, if, if you've seen The Wire, you understand everything, right? I have right? not seen this. Oh my show. gosh! I, I hear it's the best show. It is. Ever it's the best made. show my ever. Says, you it's, gotta but watch white it. people love to say, "Well, I've seen I've The seen Wire." The Wire. Yeah, yeah so exactly. So we know everything. Yeah. So, but you got to see The Wire. Okay. But anyway, um, so my neighbor was a pot dealer, and so like, well, that person is morally corrupt and bankrupt, and how could I? You know, that's that's the background that you would have. Like, you mm-hmm. know, they're on the wrong side of the law. But then when you live in the neighborhood and then you start to understand all of the societal things that have, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, mm-hmm. redlining, unfair, pre- I mean, just like lack just, of opportunity. just lack of opportunity. Guess who's always hiring? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drug sure. dealers are always hiring. And so, um, so I came to understand why people do what they do and make the choices that they make. And, and honestly, when we lived in the suburbs, um, people just kept to themselves. And so we're one of those families that can't raise our, 
our son by ourselves. We need a village. Yeah. 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 And um, our neighbors in the suburbs would complain that our nurses were parking in front of their houses and, and, and we were more of a burden. But then in, in the, in, in, on Henry street, you know, um, my, my pot dealer neighbor really was compassionate and was a good guy mm-hmm. and uh, was nice to my family and cared about us. And, would teach me all kinds of things about the neighborhood and what's what. And, Mm -hmm. um, he schooled me, you know, in a lot of things. And, um, I came to understand his life and it just changed a lot of things. It changed my view of, of, you know, just for an example, like when our, when I, when we first moved in our neighborhood, it was pretty, pretty rowdy neighborhood. And there's a lot of police calls all the time. And, I understood something more about privilege and, and when, you know, if I was outside and the police would show up, they would automatically come to me to ask what was going on. on, Why are you coming to me? Oh, I'm the only white guy standing here. So I must be more, um, you know, reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Your adjective. Yeah, exactly. And so just seeing that, um, you know, cause I was like, you know, I was a poor kid. I went to college, you know, the America is, is a merit-based thing. You know, all you have to do is work hard. But then, you know, seeing the way life is, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And I, that just helped me understand that. And so it is really ingrained in me the idea that unless you purposely um, reach out and get to know and step out of your comfort zone and befriend people of different cultures and backgrounds, you really won't be able to understand. You can have a thousand Facebook arguments, which never go anywhere. Um, Or you can just get to know someone and that will change the way you see everything. And maybe change the way they see everything. Yeah. And the way, yeah. And you, you help each other, you know? And so, um, you know, I felt like he taught me so much about, um, about life and understanding. And then I was able to maybe a little bit demonstrate that maybe white people can be compassionate too. And we were good for each other. Um, you know, and so you still live on Henry street. I do. Why? So when, when you, and I love Henry street, when and you came to, it's a, this is a beautiful, it, it yes. is a beautiful section of the city. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you came to Utica, what was your thinking about, did, did, were you coming to, you said, I'm going to, I'm going to pastor this church. What is the verb to, to pastor a church? Yeah, to pastor, minister, yeah, to pastor, pastor church. church. Um, well, there's an interesting story about how we got here. Yeah. So let me tell you this. So uh, Cornerstone Community Church was, was planted in 2000, 2001 by a big kind of mega church in Syracuse. Um, and a lot of people from Utica were traveling there and they said, hey, why don't we, rather than you doing that, why don't we plant a church in Utica that's kind of like us? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Cornerstone was planted to kind of be that mega church um, that's more conservative um, to draw everyone and kind of be the it church. And so, um, and a lot of people who started the church were people who had bounced around to every kind of church in the area and were dissatisfied for some reason. And it was kind of like, hey, this is our vindication. We're going to that all you other churches suck and we're going to plant this church and it's mm-hmm. going to be awesome and a mega church. And so it actually worked <laughs> there, you know, within two years, uh, Cornerstone was like 500 people, two services. Um, and that's big for here, you sure. know, 500 people. And so, um, and then I came on in like the second year. But this, of is in, this is in Syracuse. Right? In, no, um, they planted us in New York Mills. Oh, so we were in New York no Mills. Way. Yeah, and so, where uh, was it on Main Street? Yeah, right across from the library. I grew up in Mills, so yeah. that's it's. I know yeah, exactly that, where it was the old Methodist Church yeah. and also the the senior center. Yeah. All right, so we bought it from the from the oh, village, okay. and then, um, and so we were like we put on the show. So let me just tell you what putting on the show is like. Um, it's kind of we we did that consumer thing, church. Like we had the best tech and mm-hmm. graphics and sure. we had a rock band and we had like the best bagels and the best coffee and we had cool couches to sit on between services and our children's program was really awesome you know and um we were drawing people and then at some point the pastoral staff and the and the leadership were like you know what this feels really superficial 
like New York Mills really doesn't need us because they they're kind of self-sufficient they don't like we've tried to interact with them but they don't they really they're kind of entrenched in their and they don't really need a lot of you know mm-hmm. they and and really we're just we're just entertaining religious consumers every Sunday and we're not really doing mm-hmm. anything and so but because we were growing, we were outgrowing that mm-hmm. that building, um, and so we were looking for uh, to maybe build, you know, because that's what you do. You build something awesome, you know, that everyone will come to, kind of mecca, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, this building, Plymouth Bethesda, um, was they were looking to partner with another church, and so we came here, and we were like, um, wow, this is has a lot of potential. Um, and we had also simultaneously started to work with Reverend Skates in Johnson Park yeah. and started to help her a little bit. And that opened up our eyes to just the needs and the meaning of working with the kids in the neighborhood and all the things that Reverend Skates had been able to do in cleaning up Johnson Park. And, and so over a long period of time. Long, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and that she was only probably halfway th- in that at that point, mm-hmm. you know, and still had accomplished so much. So, that really said, you know, maybe we should go urban. But then when we brought it up to the church, people were like, hell no. Um, and then a lot of, um, that's where a lot of um, veiled and not so veiled racism and classism started showing, which is like, well, um, that's, you can't expect us to, to, to go there. It's, that's unsafe. That's, you're asking, you're endangering our families. What if we get, you know, uh, mugged or, you know, like, Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we encountered was, wow, like people thought that Oneida Square was that dangerous. And um, like, well, let's talk a little further. What makes it that dangerous? Uh, well, you know, you know, they're not going to mm-hmm. say they're what? people different from yeah, us. Right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so we really were like we halted. We're like, oh, if we do this, this is going to be it's going to hurt. It's going to be cataclysmic. But then uh, we did. We kind of put it on halt, and then we did another year of entertaining people, and we were like, this sucks, and it's soul sucking, and this really we uh, and the the other pastor and I were like, we can't do this. Like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna. I was even kind of depressed. It's just kind of like when I got a vision of what urban ministry was like. I was like, I can't go back, mm-hmm. you know, so we decided and the leadership to their credit was very brave and they're like, no, we're going to do it. So we decided to move here, sell our building in New York Mills wow. and partner with, um, partner with, um, with Plymouth Bethesda here. And so immediately we lost probably 40% of our people. Um, so we went for maybe even more than that. Um, uh, no, probably 60 to 70%. And so we went from like 500 to like 150. Yeah. As you can see, I'm not a math major. And, um, and then now we're probably about 50 people. Wow. And so I like to say that I am the world's most successful church planter because I have planted cornerstone from 500 to 50 in a matter of 15 years. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but it's been, it's really been worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, uh, but it cost us a lot. Yeah. You know, if the way that most churches w- w- go about doing urban ministry is in order to survive financially, you run the show, um, mm-hmm. and then the show, and then you send a smaller group to do the urban ministry and the show um, pays for everything and the urban ministry, but we kind of didn't do that because we couldn't stomach the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what we've had to learn um, to, and we're still learning it is how do we, um, because we have more opportunities to do meaningful things here than you could imagine. Sure. I mean, there's no limit and they're all awesome. And so if me as a leader is trying to just focus on what we should do, because there's so much need and there's so many awesome things we could be doing. And so it's hard to focus and understand that we have limited resources. And so what we're, what we're trying to learn to do is how to partner with different organizations um, and uh, not feel like we need to do everything on our own. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of that. We, one of the things that we did um, early on was we started the United Square Project. Um, which is our not-for-profit and um, that's not religiously affiliated, you know, and um, 
that has been an incubator for um, other not-for-profits so that we can all share um, resources and we act as the fiduciary um, uh, party, but um, then each organization retains all of their autonomy, but we share administrative things, we share um, the building, the resources that we have, and then we can partner and they can, um, and, we, and we partner with people who are, have the same mission as us, like you know, Hoops and Dreams mm-hmm. with Patrick Johnson or Bridge the Gap or um, uh, King of Kings, you know, different organizations. and we get to expand our mission but not have to do it all mm-hmm. ourselves and so we i think in some ways being being um needy in has helped has taught us how to be cooperative i i uh, when when you were trying to figure this out um mm-hmm. who was the first person that kind of kind of came to you or you came to them and and, and you said hey let's Let's do this thing. Or let's let's do a. Did you understand what social enterprise was at the time? Not really. Okay. I didn't, but um, we have. We're really we're really lucky to have um, one of our church members who's been with us the whole time is a professor of economics at Hamilton, and um, he really uh, is brilliant and and super humble and understands things. And so I, I kind of talk with him about it and. You know, he was well, well versed about social enterprise. And so, um, you know, he was encouraging about that. And 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 really what what was the most uh, appealing thing about social enterprise was it would allow us to to address probably what we felt was the most pressing need in our neighborhood, which was employment for people who have significant barriers to employment. And I think the median income of Oneida Square neighborhood is like 15,000. Wow. And there's a high unemployment and a lot of people have previous incarceration mm-hmm. or uh, addiction recovery issues. And so um, I think the most important thing was, and still is, providing work. So can you tell me about what Oneida Square Project is um, from, uh, when people think of an Oneida Square project, they think of, of your mosaic work. Right. Can you and give an one overview part of, 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 of Yeah, so that? as I said, Oneida Square project is um, a, what we say is our mission is to create a more just neighborhood. And so that means economics, um, that means um, racially, that means um, class, that means everything like creating a more level playing field, a more just place with opportunities. And so... Um, we are we do a little bit of housing rehabilitation um and but most of that has been privately we have encouraged people including myself to move into the neighborhood and invest and so most of it's been private that way um and then so that's part of and then we have a community garden um to beautify the neighborhood and then you know help our neighbors have a place to garden and also then um, so where there's that beautification, revitalization of the housing stock in the neighborhood, but then there's also um, uh, the, as I said, the social uh, or the the not-for-profit incubator, um, and then there um, is our our own initiatives. First and foremost, which is the um, Oneida Square Public Art and Design, and that's our mm-hmm. social enterprise to create jobs, and that's our mosaic trash can. So we have all of those things going on, which is our partnerships with other not-for-profits, our own initiatives, our housing initiatives, and, and those are all the different things that we're doing. So I think we're trying to comprehensively address issues in the neighborhood. And then then we also have partners that aren't under our, our umbrella, but like On Point for College yep. um, is here in the building too. And because we think um, education access is really important. Um, and then we have the Homeless Coalition is here in the building, um, which is very important. And then Cornell Cooperative Extension and their gardening is here. And, um, and we have a, a person who does STEM. Um, uh, Rochelle, right? Rochelle, yeah, yeah Rochelle uh, here. And so, and then Underground Cafe is here uh, for the after school program. So we're trying to, in every way, connect resources and act as really a community center. Um, and a community organization all in one. And so um, 
And it's kind of, I think you mentioned before, I have no idea what I'm doing, um, but it just seems like the nobody right Nobody does. Yes. That's the thing. That's yeah. what I'm learning in this. Yeah. Like, nobody knows. Yes. And so if anyone ever asked me to come give a, like a, like, mm-hmm. come tell us how you do a social, okay, I'll tell you what I did, but yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean it's going to yeah. work. Yeah, Doesn't exactly. mean it's working. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's descriptive, but not prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So um, that's kind of, that's kind of what we do here in what are some of the, uh, do, can you tell me a story about someone that has kind of been transformed through uh, one of these? I mean, I know that there's a lot, but, um, yeah. you know, full, full disclosure, you know, you had done a TED Talk in, yeah. in Utica and yeah. uh, it really moved a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if you might be able to share one of those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll share what we shared in the TED Talk. Um, our our project manager and construction manager, Doug, um, is a, a prime example of someone who um, was looking for an opportunity for work, had had just uh, graduated from the Parker House uh, at the Rescue mm-hmm. Mission, does a great job of helping guys transition out of addiction recovery. Um, and he had been attending church here, and we were just starting, and it was a good match because he needed a job, and we needed someone who knew how to do carpentry and construction. And um, so he has been with us from the very beginning, and has become part of who we are and has been able to stay clean and sober. And um, we also were able to to um, provide housing for him in the neighborhood. Um, actually, we bought the house next to my house um, uh, through the social enterprise. And so we're able to, um, you know, provide housing and a job. And um, uh, and I think it's been, you know, a good experience for, for Doug because um, it, he invested in us and we invested mm-hmm. in him and that's what we hope to continue to do um, and so we we want to continue to expand so that we can have a lot more people like Doug who can come and work for us and they don't have to I think Doug will probably be with us permanently mm-hmm. or it, as long as he wants to be and we hope he wants to be with us you know um, until he retires because um, he's been so meaningful for us to I mean he's blessed us as much as we could ever, you know, um, because he's just, um, he has so much skill. I think that's one of the things that people don't, employers don't understand is they're, they're for people who, um, are coming out of difficult situations that cause them to have problems in life. Um, as we were saying, um, the people who are able to, to use that pain to fuel them, um, are the most amazing people to not only have work for you, but be a part of your organization and, um, add so much value, you know, relationally and, and to our, to what we're doing. I mean, we have, you know, it's amazing that we, as this little social enterprise have someone of his carpentry skill Mm -hmm. and that's just as part of your team, as part of our team that just doesn't happen, you know? Um, so, um, and then, you know, and for us that he would, you know, help us with his skills is amazing. Did you know anything about business before you kind of got into this? Nothing. I, what's some of the biggest things that you've had to figure out uh, along the way? I think the, thankfully, um, Diana DePrimo, who works full time at SUNY Poly and then is my assistant here with the United Square Project and church and both churches. She comes on her lunch hour, which is really nice of her. Um, and she works at night at home, you know, also for us. She's really been able to handle all the regulatory things like and I've been no help to her at all. Mm-hmm. But she's just been really good at learning it. And um uh, and, and her, her job at SUNY and her skills there had really helped as well. Um, so she had a lot of, of good skills there. So she's helped me with all the regulatory compliance, but the one thing that I've really had to learn that I think goes into me as the director of the United Square Project is fundraising and sales and marketing. Um, now we had, um, Michelle Truitt, who's an amazing yeah. marketing person who really just, put us on the map, which we really needed. Um, and so that the marketing was taken care of, but sales and fundraising is really what kind of a director needs to know how to do. And so tr- that's been the big learning curve for me is trying to learn that. And it's, it, that's putting on a show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> right? You I have mean, to, yeah. but what I've learned is telling the story and Michelle really helped yeah. me understand this is all you have to do is tell your story yep. in an authentic, in way. an authentic way. And so I think that's what I can do. I can do that, but I really need people to help me because I really don't, you know, I have, I always kid people like I have a master's in theology. 
uh, that does not, that's not an MBA, you yeah. know? So, um, and most social enterprises are started by social workers, pastors, people like me who have no idea what we're doing. How know? do you balance or how have you learned to, or maybe you haven't learned to do this yet. How do you balance the need to be financially sustainable and be that center of opportunity and compassion? I don't know that we've figured that out yet, but that's what we're really trying to figure out. Um, but it's really, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Um, I being who I am, I always err on compassion mm -hmm. and that's why I need people on my board and around me that will be like, who will help me balance that. Um, because I'm always going to give the store away. And I do. Have you um, ever had to turn uh, to, to turn someone away that's really looking for an opportunity that is, I know that's a tough question to answer. Yeah, but, but all the time. I mean, like people come looking for work every day. Yeah. And, and right now we don't have a huge capacity. So I spend lots of time trying to figure out things that, and someone described it like this, but part of my job is throwing things on the wall and seeing what sticks. So like in the TED Talk I talked about, mm -hmm. we did like, T-shirts and stuff, right? yeah, or holy shit to dog waste yeah. removal, or um, just I really don't care what it is as long as it um, employs people. Mm -hmm. And so I'll throw anything up on the against the wall and see if it sticks. And that's kind of I feel like I'm a plate spinner and a you know just trying to find that thing that will provide the the long term viability and stability. When you're doing the your cust you have customers, I think, mm -hmm. sometimes that come because they want to support a cause, right? Exactly. But the other side to that is that, like, as someone that, you know, we, we've worked with you guys on some, some planters and other things. Yeah. Like, you do really good work. Thank you. Yeah. And so yeah. there's this weird dichotomy. It's like you want to be known. F this part of the story is certainly providing opportunity for people, and you want folks yeah. to understand that. But you, I think... I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe you don't want to be, you don't want to be seen as a charity. No. Right. You want to be seen as a business that is just a good. And that's the hard know? part is because sometimes people don't want to pay for the quality right, we're, we're giving right. them, you know? So like, um, that's sometimes like I've had to have some frank discussions with some of our clients, which is, you know, you're getting a really high quality product here, yeah. you know, and we're giving you, you know, we appreciate you helping us, but we're also helping you too, you know? So, um, it, there is that fine line, and I think that Kathy, our designer, um, is the, the driving force of everything we do is to be really quality, and she doesn't do anything less than that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. That, it, that is a tough thing because on the one hand, sometimes people think, well, I'm giving you charity. But like, no, you're getting a really high-end thing. Yeah. We so, just happen to be a social yeah, enterprise. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it works both ways, yeah. It's a hard thing to square. It is. You know? It is. Is this something? Is this a model that's repeatable that you think or do you think that it what you've been able to do here is uniquely this particular neighborhood well i think it's repeatable but it's not a product it is a relational commitment so what i'm in this for the long haul so oneida square is my home and it will be my home um, for as long as i'm able to make it my home and that commitment, I think, is what is the most important thing. So if I were to, if I were to, you know, give a seminar and say, you know, how do you repeat? It's like you have to invest, commit, and dig in. And, and that's, and then it, it will happen. And anything is possible, mm -hmm. but it's not a business model that's repeatable. It's a relational model that is born out of commitment and love. Like, I love this neighborhood. So um, th I think it's the love that, uh, so I'd say is if you're gonna do it, you gotta love it. You have to love your neighborhood and the people in your neighborhood. You can't see it as like, hey, there's a grand opportunity, here's a business model. Um, I think that will fall short. I mean, maybe you could do some things. I mean, sure, we'd like to have a lot more money sure. to do things, but I think it's, you know, I don't, I don't wanna overstress this, but it's love. Um, it's, um, it's love that makes it fly. Uh, uh, have you ever seen Firefly? Um, no. Yeah, yeah. The movie Serenity, but it's kind of, it's, uh, I love sci-fi, but anyway, he's kind of like, it's love that makes this thing fly. Um, so I think that's the key. So, and you can't manufacture that. When you are this morning, you know, it's bright and early and I'm asking you to come and basically tell tell your story first thing. Yeah. Um, 
what's a what's a given day look like and 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 how do you part of this job it mm-hmm. seems like and I'll call it a job or you're yeah. calling whatever part of this job I feel like is being able to get up every day and um stand in the face of great challenges how do you is is do you have anything that is um learned or conditioned that you feel like allows you to do that or is 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 this faith-based is this action-based for you is it a combination of the two because you're you're facing a lot of big challenges and, and i think in in a lot of ways people ask you to help carry the weight um mm-hmm. for them as well and so how do you how do you learn how to be better at doing that? I think what what gets me going every day is um, from my story, which is feeling the weight of the exile and abandonment of normal society um, fuels me towards inclusion. So everything that I do is about inclusion, I think. And so what gives me, so my day doesn't look like, I think probably the average pastor, like, so I got this morning and, um, got two of our, um, um, people from United Square Project that we employ working on the, the, um, the community garden and, um, and then we also do, we have a mowing contract for another organization and, you know, and I, I lead that crew once a week as well. And we mow and weed whack over three counties. Wow. Um, yeah. And, um, so like, it's that, it's those relationships that is what I really enjoy. So, um, the thing that fuels me is that desire to be present, um, for those who I feel are left out. And so everything I do is trying to build relationships in that way. So um, a lot of what I do as a pastor isn't so much um, maybe the traditional kind of like maintenance care, but it's relationship building Mm -hmm. and doing things. Um, uh, I don't know if that's a good answer, but... It's good enough. Yeah. (laughs) How, how, if I owned a business or if I'm a startup yeah. or I'm a, a for-profit entity, what, a, what can I learn from what you're doing here? What are the, op, what are the missed opportunities that you see? Well, as I said earlier, the greatest missed opportunities is the workforce that you're missing out on. Um, there are really skilled, highly motivated people that are, that are not part of the workforce that, that businesses are missing out on. Like people like Doug who are highly skilled and that can really help your business that you just may overlook because they may have had, you know, a mistake or two in there or Mm -hmm. some kind of trouble or suffering in their background. And how can you, or how can we, or how can anyone that's maybe listening to this try to rectify that? Well, I think maybe working with people like us that are, um, and say, look, I'm looking for some good people. Do you have anyone? And then we could, uh, social enterprises that are, that are trying to recruit and develop and and assimilate people, I think working with us could be helpful to to other organizations. Um, and then um, Rome, uh, there's a, another church in, in Rome, and they do this thing called Rome Community Job Fairs, and we partner with them. And they we try to work with them, partnering some people with the job fairs as well and employers. And so we've, also, we've begun to do that. Do you feel like you're successful? To bring it all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Well, in my tortured self, no. Um, I always have that nagging doubt. Um, and I have plenty of people from my tradition affirming that nagging doubt, saying, like, you're not successful. What are you doing? This doesn't look like. And it's hard to, it's hard to deal with that. Um, so it's internal and external. Um, but... I love it so much and I feel like this is where God wants me that I know that, yes, I know that this is successful, um, but it's hard to quantify on a profit and loss statement. 
Different metric. Yeah, different metric. Different metric. Yeah. Um, if, if folks want to get involved or learn more about what you do or, uh, you know, whether that's get, get in, become a customer, become part of a, a social enterprise, what's the best way to get a hold of you, contact you? Where can people learn more about what you're doing? Uh, well, you can find us at oneidasquareproject.com um, or um, com. Or you can come by. The best way is to come by and talk with us. Um, we are here at 500 Plant Street in Utica, across from Dunkin' Donuts. And our our um, workshop is open every day from 11 to 3, Monday through Friday. And um, we are always here to talk about things. We And that's kind of what we like to meet people mm-hmm. and see where we can partner. Um, and we always need volunteers um, with the many things that we do. We'd love to, to do that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time. I'm both humbled and impressed. It's it's always good to talk to you, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. That was my conversation with Pastor Mike Ballman. And um, that's it. I I hope that uh, you guys enjoyed this conversation. It was a little bit different this this week, huh? A little little different, a little heavy, a little heavy, but good. I feel feel good about it. and uh, as always, thanks for subscribing. Uh, you know, if, if you're if you're into it, I'm going to be sending out the second volume of the newsletter, the Rust Belt Startup newsletter, that has um, some highlights of of the stuff that maybe didn't make the podcast, or some other uh, neat little tidbits of things I've been uh, reading or consuming or seen uh, around the web. If you're interested, go to rustbeltstartup.com, give me your email address, and I'll send you a newsletter once a, a monthish. That's it. I won't share your email address. won't do any of the, the spammy stuff. Just send you a newsletter. Have some cool stuff once a month. Um, but thanks for subscribing. Uh, and thanks to, to people that have been like writing me and suggesting guests or suggesting people that I should talk to. It's, it's awesome. Very helpful. I appreciate it. Keep the email coming. So thanks a lot for tuning in to Rust Belt Startup. I'm Ryan Miller. We'll see you guys in two weeks. <laughs>